Um, and so here's the interesting thing. So last week, um, you know, I, I, I had asked God, hey, where are we going here as we um, continue in our series in Judges? And what is it we're exploring and what are we tackling? And, um, and I, I feel like God had something special for us. Now, um, I'm sure I'm going to make it worse than it was supposed to be. Right? Because I'm always bringing God down. God's like moving forward and I'm dragging him back. But, but here's the thing. I feel like God had um, this message for us in the book of Judges that simply says this. That he will not quit on you. Right? And, and, and that no matter what, no matter where you find yourself, no matter how difficult the circumstances are, no matter how bad it is, that God simply will not leave you or forsake you, and that you are always not only welcome home, but he is always looking for you to bring you home. And then I got sick. And and, and I think Satan sucks a lot. Actually, I know Satan sucks a lot because here's the thing. I was so excited. Again, not because this is going to be the best sermon you've ever heard. Far from it, I'm sure. But the message of it is so ridiculously important. And I was so excited to share my heart with you about the things that God was showing me, this reality that he will not stop on you. You have never outworked the grace of God, which is found in Jesus Christ. And then I got sick and I couldn't preach. And so all week long, I've been so excited to get back to you Uh, to open this up, because here's the thing. I needed to hear this. And I would imagine that somebody else might need to hear it as well. And so as we jump in today, we're we're just, we're just going to pick right up. And and we're in in Judges 3. Uh, I want to thank Pastor David for filling in so admirably for me last week. I love two things. I love one, um, partnering in ministry with somebody that can just um, step in in a moment's notice. Um, and not just step in at a moment's notice, but just do it really well. And so I uh, appreciate his flexibility and all of that. Uh, but, but I want to I get back to Judges 3, right? Because in Judges 3, we're going to, to continue our story of Israel as they've entered into the promised land and as God continues to work in and through them as his special prized possession. And in Genesis 3, or I'm sorry, in Judges 3, God is going to have to do something to start to win them back. He's going to have some life-changing moments, generation-changing moments in Israel where he's going to have to try to win them back. And here's the deal. We've all experienced life-changing moments. And some of them have been great. And some of them are hard and messy. When they're great, right, we know it, right? Like, like she says yes. You walk down the aisle. You get the job. You have the child. You, 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 um, having children is a good thing. Um, some of you are like, Okay, right? But all of these things happen and we have these moments. And what happens is this one brief moment, it just changes everything for us. Right? And sometimes they're not so great. Right? Right? 
sometimes those moments are painful. Sometimes you just, you give in to the addiction uh, and it starts to win. Uh, and your boss decides that you're not needed anymore, right? Or, or your husband decides that, that he's not as committed to your marriage as you are. Like there are those moments too, but what they all are, they all are these life-defining moments where something happens, right? And somehow it causes a change moving forward. My biggest life-changing moment was when I was in eighth grade. In eighth grade, um, I was attending by myself. My parents would drop me off in the morning, um, and I would attend um, this little Southern Baptist church in Kelowna, Illinois. I don't even remember the name of it. I'm sure it was First Baptist Church in Kelowna. Um, One of like seven Baptist churches in Kelowna, a city of 400 people that had seven Baptist churches. And I went to one that had like 40 people there. I ended up at that one because that's where my grandparents used to go. Uh, And I went with them, my parents, my parents at some point, I've told you this before, they got offended and stopped going. My grandparents kind of decided they designated themselves as shut-ins. They went everywhere else, but they didn't go to church on Sunday, but I liked it, right? I felt drawn to it. It was a good 15, 20 minute drive every Sunday morning from where we lived in Moline. But my parents, dutifully, my dad would get up and only grumble a little and, and he'd let me in the car and we'd drive and he'd drop me off and he'd go find something to do for two hours, because uh, three hours, because I went to Sunday school, right? And he'd go find something to do and then come pick me up when it was over. But I remember in eighth grade, right, that there was a moment, actually a series of moments over a couple of months where I knew I was broken and where I was convinced that hell was real. And in good Southern Baptist form, I was convinced that I could die on the way home in a fiery car crash and be stuck in hell forever. And that there was only one way out for me. And that was through the cross. And you would think, because I'm a relatively intelligent guy, that I would have responded right away. But no, No, I was stubborn and scared. And so I remember for for every Sunday and Wednesday night youth group for the course of a month that I would go and I would listen with rapt attention, right, at at the saving grace that was offered to me through Jesus. And, And yet somehow I just wouldn't quite respond because in a Southern Baptist church, there's only one way to respond. You know what that is? You gotta wait till the end of the sermon you got to wait till the chorus of the last song, and you got to come forward, right? If you don't come forward, it's not real. Uh, That's probably not true in every Southern Baptist church, but it was true in the one I grew up in, right? You had to come forward, and that takes courage, and it takes um, something I didn't have for a good month. But then finally, God just broke through, and there was a moment where I just, I remember singing like the the fourth last verse of Old Rugged Cross, where I just quit. I just quit. I couldn't fight it anymore. I just gave up. I got up. I walked forward. It's really awkward being 14 at a church with no family members, right? 
coming forward, and then afterwards, everybody wants to talk to you and touch you, and your dad's in the parking lot waiting. (laughs) Right? They were sweet ladies that wanted to hug and kiss and all this goodness. Dad's out there going, what took you so long? It took me another two weeks to tell my parents that I decided to turn my life over to Jesus. Right? Right? But that was a moment for me. Everything changed. Now, some of it changed quickly and some of it changed real painfully slow. But everything changed. We have these moments where God does something, right? And then everything is radically different moving forward if we allow it to be. And that's where we're going to find Israel in chapter 3 as we continue today. We continue kind of the, the national story, right? So uh, they leave Egypt. Moses, um, at God's command, gathers the people. There's the plagues, and they leave Egypt. Um, and the first generation, they wander and they die in the wilderness. They wander and die in the wilderness because God brings them to the foot of the promised land and says, go in and get it. I gave it to you. This is my gift to you. This is your inheritance. Go take it. And they looked and they said, oh, God, that looks scary. And they didn't want to. So God said, fine, you won't. And they wandered in the wilderness for a generation. And that first generation died in the wilderness except for Joshua and Caleb, because they were the only two to push back and say, no, let's go. We can do it. God says it's ours. It's ours. Let's go get it. But those two survive. And everybody from the younger generation survives. And they find themselves back 40 years later at the edge of the promised land. And this time they follow Joshua into the land and they go in and they conquer. Kind of. Right? Pastor David told us in week one of the series that they went in and they followed God, kind of. Right? They took the land, but they didn't follow in fullness. And and we talked about why that is, right? Because following God when things are good, following God completely when things are good, feels like overkill. It feels like overkill. And so they stopped. They followed God half-heartedly. And instead of tearing down idols, they allowed idols to exist. And instead of driving out people that preached and taught falsehood, they allowed people that preached and taught falsehood to live and stay in the land. And then the next generation, well, the idols that their parents wouldn't get rid of, they ended up committing themselves to wholeheartedly. So in just three generations... We've seen this roller coaster where people have rejected God, they followed God with half of their heart, and a new generation has come along that rejects them again. And we're starting to see a pattern of how this works. In fact, here's here's where we find ourselves in Judges 3. It's a generation later. The people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They intermarried with them. Israel's sons married their daughters, and Israelite daughters were given in marriage to their sons, and the Israelites served their gods. And that's how we get where we get. One generation compromises, the next generation goes all in, right? So even though we're told, hey, 
Stay away from those people. Don't intermarry with those people. Don't mix with those people. And it has nothing to do with race. It's not a racial thing. It's a spiritual thing. Don't get yourselves involved with those people because they are wholeheartedly serving other gods. And if you are supposed to love God with your whole heart and you're to acknowledge there is one God, but yet you're getting yourself mixed in with somebody else that loves another God and wants to serve another God, what do you think is going to happen to you? You're going to drift. And so that's what's happened. They've drifted. The people of Israel lived among the Canaanites. They intermarried and the Israelites served their gods. And that's where we are. Now, here's the problem. Most of us think that what's going to happen to Israel next is punishment. Most of us think, most of us have this idea that yes, God is good. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, God won't quit on us, right? But it's this thought, right, that God also isn't going to tolerate this that God is angry, that God is going to sit back and say, look at everything I did for you. Do you not notice all the plagues I brought on Egypt? Did you not notice this land I prepared for you that's flowing with milk and honey? Did you not notice how I parted the Red Sea so you could walk right through it on dry land and close it over Pharaoh as he was chasing you? Did you not notice how I made it rain bread in the desert? Did you forget how I brought the quail and how when you were thirsty, I struck the rock and water came out of the rock? Have you forgotten who I am? And you're going to intermarry with these other people and you're going to chase their gods? I mean, we get this idea that God is frustrated and fed up and done. But he's not. He's not. See, we have to remember... When we choose to believe that our way instead of God's way is the best way for us to be happy, he's going to let us have it. But he's not angry. In fact, it's one of the most loving things he does. One of the most loving things God does is let you have what you think you want. Think about your life. How many times have there been things that you thought desperately that you wanted? You knew you wanted. Everybody else told you no. Everybody else said, don't do that. Everybody else said, that's a bad idea. Talking to Riley yesterday. Riley, you, you don't care, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Riley took a job. She's, uh, she's doing ministry at Prairie Lakes Church now, or she will be starting soon in Cedar Falls. So she and Isaiah have to move from Ankeny to Cedar Falls, and they're looking for an apartment. Turns out apartments are expensive in Cedar Falls, but she found one yesterday. She sent me the link, and then she called me and said, Dad, look at this apartment. Tell me what you think. It's not an apartment. It's a room. It's 220 square feet. My dorm room was bigger than this. My dorm room was bigger than this. I'm looking at it and I'm like, yeah, there's a bed and there's a toilet. There's a chair in the corner. Like you and Isaiah will fit very nicely there. She's like, yeah, but there's a lot of common space. 
You mean like with strangers that you don't know? It's a great idea. And then I'm reading the reviews of this place, and it's like, well, you know what? It tells, I mean, the website tells me this place is perfect when you have no credit or terrible credit and can't get another apartment. Also, if you are recently released from incarceration. Now listen, everybody needs a place to live, right? But I'm telling Riley on the phone, I'm like, honey, I don't think you thought this through. But the price is right. There's a reason the price is right. And I think I was able to convince her. We'll see what happens this week. But you can be praying about that. Um, But here's the deal, right? We get these ideas in our head that we know we're right. And we know what's good for us. And we know what will make us happy. And so no matter what, we decide that we're going to run after that thing. Now, as a parent, I want to stop her. I want to say, don't, don't make that mistake. But yet, when we know we're right, we run head first. And those things that we thought would make us happy, they make us miserable. And here's the deal. It's because God loves us that he allows it. I know it doesn't feel like it, but it's because God loves us that he allows it. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. Well, what was the evil? The evil is that they were worshiping other gods. Not the one true God that brought them out of Egypt, the one real God that exists. They were worshiping false gods, demons. They were worshiping the enemy. The whole reason that God is driving people out of the land for Israel is because they've prostituted themselves to these other gods. Now Israel is worshiping them. They did evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot about the Lord their God. They served the images of Baal and of the Asherah poles. In case you're curious, they traded God for those. Why? Seemed like fun. Well, it seemed like fun, right? Baal, Baal was a fertility god, right? We've talked about this before, but, but how do you suppose they worshiped a fertility god? Lots of temple prostitutes, lots of, uh, a lot of, uh, of sexual um, immorality. So they're looking at the standards that God gives them. God says, be holy because I'm holy. And here's what holiness looks like. And they're looking at the Canaanites who are saying, hey, we're all going to go down to the temple and engage in temple prostitution to worship our God. We're probably going to eat bacon while we're there. (laughs) And the Israelites, they say, yeah, God, I know what you did for me, but following you with my whole heart right now feels like overkill. I'm in the land. I'm good. And that looks like it'll make me happy. And so they go. And they worship the other gods. And God brings, God brings charges against them. Here's what he says through the prophet Jeremiah. Talking to Jeremiah, he says, What did your ancestors, talking about Israel, what did your ancestors find wrong with me that led them to stray so far away from me? They worshiped worthless idols only to become worthless themselves. 
This is God talking to Jeremiah. He's like, what, what fault did they find in me? Like, what was the thing that they looked at me and said, no, that's not right. That's not good enough. Why did they find something wrong with me that they ran here after this other thing, only to become worthless themselves? He says, my people did two things that were stupid, two evil things. One, they left me. And two, when they left me, they went with them. Right? He says, they've abandoned me, the fountain of living water. For what? To go dig their own cisterns and wells that had cracks that wouldn't even hold water. See, that's what we do. We chase after things that we think will make us happy. It's what the Israelites did. They left the God who gives them everything because they think, hey, if I do it this way, it'll be even better. But that leads to misery. But God doesn't quit. Look what he says in 2 Samuel. All of us die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out to the ground, which can't be gathered up again. Broken cisterns. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we've been separated from him. Here's here's the, the big story of Judges. It's not how stupid the people are. And they are dumb. And figuring out what it means for me. It's not about how stupid I am. Listen to me. I am dumb. The story of Judges is that even though we're dumb, even though we've rejected God because that seemed like overkill and we've chased after something else, even though we all die eventually and our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, even then God doesn't just sweep us away. But here's what he does. He devises ways to bring us back when we've been separated from him. The story of Judges is this. God does not quit where he has committed himself. And God has committed himself to Israel, and therefore God will not quit. And if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, God has committed himself to you. And he will not quit. So the Lord burned with anger against Israel. He turned them over to King Cushan Rotham of Aram Naharam. Trust me. And the Israelites served him for eight years. One of the things that God does to bring you back, because this is all about bringing Israel back. He allows you to be miserable. Some of you right now, some of you right now find yourself in this place where your Christian life, where the life you're trying to live feels miserable. Nothing is working the way that it's supposed to work. Everything is wrong. Everything is off. Somehow, somewhere, you thought if you followed God, if you tried to follow God, if you claimed God, that things were going to be easier and better. And you find yourself in this place where nothing is right. Everything feels miserable. And here's what I want you to know. Sometimes your misery, listen careful, because if you don't understand this, if you don't catch this, this can really, it it can ruin faith, right? But sometimes 
your being miserable in your circumstance is an act of God's grace. Sometimes misery happens, right? The world is broken. But many times, God is using your misery as an act of love to bring you back. Here's an easy example. Think Jonah. Jonah found himself for three days in the belly of a whale. Like Jonah was a prophet of God. Right? We think that God had the whale swallow Jonah, right, to teach him a lesson. Right? To punish him for his mistake. And yes, God is good and ultimately God is gracious. So we think God gave him a second chance. But no, 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 no. Right? Sitting three days in the belly of the whale. That wasn't God punishing Jonah. That was God loving Jonah. It was God allowing the misery of where Jonah wanted to be, away from God, to come to its fullness so that Jonah would repent. The prodigal sitting in the pig pen, wanting to eat pig slop. That's miserable. We're like, God's punishing him because he ran away. No, God's loving him, right? Because God isn't interested primarily in him being happy in this life. God is interested primarily in bringing him home. God is interested primarily in bringing Israel back. So he allows them to be miserable. And they have to serve this king for eight years. David says something interesting in one of the Psalms. You know this one, right? Create in me a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal and right spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. This is David crying out to God, God, I know I need you and I know that I wander. So create in me a clean heart. But then he says this this really interesting thing that we skip. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. How? Make me willing to obey. Make me willing to obey. See, David is, is expressing from his heart something that we tend to forget, right? We tend to think, right, that, that if, if God just treats us gently and God just says, look, Matt, come on, buddy, you can do better, right? You, God sits me down, you know, he's got his glasses in his jacket and a pipe, like a big fatherly conversation, and he's like, Matt, Come on, buddy, you can do better. And, and I think, oh, you know what, God, you're right, I can do better, and I'll just go out there and I'll try harder. But, but we won't, right? We think we know what will make us happy, and we go a different way. But David, from his own broken heart, right, thought he knew what would make him happy. He thought another woman would make him happy. So he orchestrated this encounter with Bathsheba. And then he thought getting away with it would certainly calm things down and help him feel better. And so all of a sudden he's orchestrated the murder of her husband. But none of it made him feel better. He went his own way and it made him miserable. And now he's crying out to God, God created me a clean heart. Renew a loyal spirit within me. There is something in me that is wrong and broken. 
Fix it, God. Don't banish me from your presence. Don't take away your Holy Spirit. Then he says this, make me willing to obey you. Why does he say make me willing to obey you? Because David knows left to his own accord, he won't. Israel, left to their own devices, they didn't. Sometimes God must use misery to bring us back to him. And that's exactly what happens here. This is the pattern. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. The Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. Right? As soon as their misery causes them to shift, as soon as they hit rock bottom, as soon as something happens where they have that life-changing moment where they say, oh my goodness, this is bad. God's ways are right. God intervenes. Why? Because that's what he's been waiting for. That was the whole point. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. Now, just a fun little side note here about Othniel. Family legacy matters. You remember the the two people, the two spies that went in the land that said, we can take the land, we can do this even though everybody else rejected and they had to wander 40 years in the wilderness. That was Joshua and Caleb, right? Now, Joshua and Caleb got to live while the rest of that generation died. But the younger ones, they lived, and it was their turn to come in and take the land. One of those younger ones that got to live, now under Caleb's care, right? As the oldest brother, the only surviving family member, the one that's been in charge of that family now, is Caleb, and he's in charge of Kenneth. So Caleb, who never compromised, Caleb, who never gave in, everybody else around him started to compromise, but Caleb never compromised. And he raised a younger brother who also apparently didn't compromise. When the whole culture went wonky and they started worshiping Baal and Asherah and they started serving the other gods, Caleb and his line did not. And so now we have a whole culture rejecting God, but, but Caleb's nephew, kind of like his grandson in this scenario, he's faithful and he's ready. And so when God's ready to deliver Israel, he anoints Othniel, Caleb's um, young nephew. I want to tell you that, that even when it doesn't seem like it's working, When you're faithful and you're following God with your whole heart, even when it feels like overkill, you're just pushing in and following and you're trusting and you're not compromising. Even if it doesn't feel like it's working, it's working. It matters. We read, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel and he became Israel's judge. And this is the pattern in the book of Judges. He went to war against the king of Aram, and the Lord gave Othniel victory over him. So there was peace in the land for 40 years, and then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. That's the pattern of the judges, right? God lets Israel have what they think they want. What they want causes them misery, but God doesn't save them from their misery. He lets it happen. 
Not because he's mean, not because he's punishing, not because he's getting even, but because he's trying to make them understand that his way is right. And as soon as they respond to him, as soon as they say, yes, God, your way is right, he intervenes and he brings deliverance. That's the pattern of the judges. And it happens over and over and over again. And in this series, we're not going to deal with each judge individually, but that's Othniel. You, you read about Ehud. Ehud was uh, uh, one of the first judges. He was left-handed. He went, uh, um, he, he went to, uh, it's kind of a, a, a funny story, right? He went to pay tribute to the King Eglon that, that Israel had been subject to for 20 years. Um, Eglon was a big fat dude. And so he sneaks up and he left-handed, he stabs him. And, and the guy's so fat that the knife goes all the way in and the belly comes over it. And he goes into the bathroom and he dies, right? And then Ehud gets away because the guards think something's wrong, but they're too embarrassed to go into the bathroom to check. So while they're too embarrassed to go into the bathroom and check, Ehud escapes and there's, um, through God, leads um, to deliverance as they defeat the army. Uh, then there's Deborah and Barak. Deborah is the priestess over the nation of Israel at the time. And, and she, God says to her, hey, go get Barak, right? I'm raising him up as a judge. He's going to take 10,000 troops and he's going to go and he's going to defeat Sisera and I'm going to deliver Israel. And Barak says, I'll go, but I'm only going to go, Deborah, if you come with me. And Deborah's like, fine, I'll come with you. But here's the deal. Because you wouldn't go on your own, you're not going to get the glory for this. There's a woman that will get the glory for this. And so after the battle, Sisera runs away and he goes to a camp where he thinks he's got allies. And there's a woman named Jael. And Jael says, hey, come in here. I'll hide you. It's all good. And Jael says, come in here, I'll hide you. And she lays him down and covers him up and she gives him more milk to drink. And she kind of strokes his hair and he falls asleep. I picture her humming and singing a little song. It's okay, don't worry, your enemies will never find you. And as she's stroking his hair and he's singing a song, she pulls out a tent peg. She's like, don't worry, Sisera, everything's gonna be all right. And then she gets a hammer no worries, buddy. I got you. And she drives that thing. The, the Bible tells us through his skull, hits it so hard, drives it into the ground. And then it adds, and he died. <laughs> In case we weren't clear. Turns out that's bad for your health. So God delivers through Deborah and Barak, but Barak doesn't get the glory. Jael gets the glory. Uh, and we read about Gideon. We'll actually talk a little bit more about him next week. But as he, uh, God leads him to pare his army down from 30,000 to 300 to defeat the Moabites. And Tola and Jair and Jephthah. Jephthah's a weird dude, right? God says, hey, I'm going to have you be my judge and you're going to go and you're going to um, conquer. And, and, God, and Jephthah's like, cool. God, I'm going to make you a deal. When I come back, if you give me victory, the first thing that comes out of my door, I will sacrifice as a burnt offering to you. 
Anybody else see where this might go bad? So he goes and he battles and God gives him victory. Of course he did. Why wouldn't he? Uh, God, you know, delivers Israel and Jephthah comes back and he's walking into his property. And the first thing that comes out of his door is his daughter. And the word tells us that he follows through. And then we read about Samson, and that dude is seriously messed up. We'll actually talk Samson on our podcast a little bit, because there's just too much to cover right here. Here's the point, right? These judges aren't great people. Some of them are faithful. Some of them aren't. But every time Israel repents of their sin, every time, even if it's the same stupid sin Time and time again. Every time Israel repents of their sin, guess what? God is there to deliver them. How many times, how many times would you do it? How many times would you have the same conversation with somebody knocking on your door? I'm in trouble, I need help. Yeah, of course, let me help. Next week, I'm in trouble, I need help. Didn't we just talk about this? Fine, let me get my stuff. I'll help you. The third time, are you kidding me? This is the last time I will help you. The fourth time, I'm in trouble. I need help. You know what? Help yourself. You're on your own. But not God. Not God. Why? Because God has made a commitment to Israel. But it's more than that. It's more than a commitment to Israel. God's heart is for Israel. See, it would be one thing. We could convince ourselves, well, God made a promise and God doesn't break promises. So no matter how annoyed he gets with Israel, no matter how annoyed he gets that he has to keep doing the same thing over and over again, no matter how irritated and frustrating it is, God will keep rescuing them because he made a promise. And when God makes a promise, he doesn't make a promise. See, we could convince ourselves of that. That God is going to keep showing up because he said he would. But listen to me. That's not God's heart. And that is not how God feels about Israel. And that is not how God feels about you. God doesn't keep forgiving you because he said he would. God keeps showing up because he loves you. Because that's who he is. And I have a feeling that some of us, some of us might be afraid that we've out God's grace. Because you keep asking for forgiveness about the same thing. Or some of us are so embarrassed about that same thing that we've stopped asking for forgiveness. And some of us, some of us might think, well, God will keep forgiving me, but we think he's mad about it. And he's angry that this is still a problem. Listen to me. God is angry, but he's not angry at you. You know what he's angry at? He's angry at sin. If you are confused about God's heart for you, 
then this will never feel right. Think about a child with cancer. And think about a parent that loves them to the point of a breaking heart. That parent will never look at that child and be angry at the child. The parent will never look at a child and be angry at a child for having cancer. But the parent will look at the child and will be angry at the cancer. That's how God's heart is for you. He never, no matter how many times you're asking for forgiveness for the same thing, no matter how many times you've been stuck in the same cycle, God is always working to bring you back to him. He will use misery to do it. But as soon as you respond, as soon as you repent, as soon as you cry out to him, he is there with mercy and grace and love because he is not angry at you. The cancer that's in you, he hates. But you, his heart breaks for you. His heart broke for you while you were still a sinner and hated him. It broke for you so much that he went to the cross. How much more does it break for you now that you are his child? God is not mad at you. There's a great story in the, in, uh, um, that we read about in the book of Hosea. It's actually a weird story. I say great story. Um, it's a weird story that we read about in the, in the book of Hosea. God tells the prophet Hosea, I need to teach Israel an object lesson about my love and their faithfulness. So here's what I want you to do, Hosea. Go marry a prostitute. So he goes and he marries a prostitute named Gomer. Don't laugh. That was her name. It's a real name. If anybody here has the name Gomer, that was them, not me. Anyway, he says, go marry her. So he marries her. And guess what? Inevitably, she finds herself back in prostitution. She sold herself back into prostitution. So now Hosea has a wife who is being altogether unfaithful and she's not ashamed about it, right? And so we would think that Hosea would say, well, I tried to rescue you. I tried to save you. I'm done. But God says, no, 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 Hosea. This is a picture about the way I love my people and I love them with all of my heart and I picked them. Even if they walk away from me, I still love them even more. So here's what you do. Go buy her back. So Hosea goes and he pays a good amount of money to buy Gomer out of the sexual slavery that she's found herself in. And he brings her home and he loves her. And God says, that's a picture of how I am with my people. He says, I love them. They're my precious bride. I love them but they struggle with faithfulness. And they do things they know they shouldn't do because they think it'll make them happier. But I'm not angry at them. In fact, I love them so much, I want to buy them back. And I want to bring them home again. 
as often as it takes. That's what the cross does. God loves you so desperately. I'm not sure what you struggle with this morning. I'm not sure what the sin is that has you um, held down. Maybe you haven't even recognized it yet. Maybe you're just now starting to flirt with whether or not something would make you happier over here. But here's what I want to assure you of, right? God's heart is for you. He's not mad at you. And he wants to bring you home because his ways are best and right. Out there, eventually will lead to misery. But God is always wanting to draw you back. I brought this book up here. I want to tell you that this came as a recommendation from Malia, and um, I'm not ashamed to say my therapist. And so if you're, um, whose name is, no, um, (laughs) Gentle and Lowly is a book by Dane Ortland. Um, I'm going to recommend that if you struggle with God's heart for you, right? Like I read a lot of books and I don't tell you about all of them because, well, that would get overbearing for you, but this one feels worth it to me. Gentle and Lowly. It's an exceptional read and a reminder about God's heart for you. Listen to me. God is not mad at you. He loves you and his heart breaks for you. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for who you are. God, we we, we sing that we love you, um, but, but we acknowledge that we don't always act like it. But God, that your love is faithful and your love is firm. And your love never wavers, even in the face of betrayal, in the face of infidelity, in the face, God, of us turning our backs on you to chase what we thought would make us happy. God, you never quit. And you are always there to welcome us home. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you so much. Amen. Amen. So as we prepare to leave, we go back to the the pictures that Matt shared real quick. So I got to share. <laughs> so uh, Matt said a lot of amazing things, and I hope when you leave here, Pastor Matt, this is a lot of great truth, and that's core. But it was actually a six-year-old this morning that said the thing that couldn't get out of my head. Um, and here's why. So that picture's up there, and Matt's talking about them exchanging that from God. And then all of a sudden, my nephew, uh, he's over there, Amy starts laughing. I was like, what'd he say? And he goes, <laughs> she's laughing. She's like, well, because he just said, that's not God. And then he said this, that's just a bull holding a baby. And that made me laugh, because I'm like, and then that's what I got to thinking about. Um, church, we need to start praying. This is what all that kept going through my head. We need to start praying that God gives us the perspective that when the world tries to pull us away from God, we can look at it and say, no, that's not God. That's something leading me to misery and everything Pastor Matt was just talking about. And here's the thing. Everybody here right now, you already know what you need to do to get closer to God. It's clear as day to you. We, we said there's like, I don't know what to do. We know what to do. It's having the courage that Pastor Matt was talking about to do it. That's the thing. We, God's given us the perspective to know when he's in it and when he's not. We've got to be the courage to step out like he did and say, you know what? I, I, that's what I want. So as we leave, I pray that blessing upon us. Lord God, just give us the courage to step out into what is right. Let us see the world for what it is and the things that go against you as that's worthless to me, Lord, because it's not you. Um, out of a child can see the difference and say, that's not God. Lord, give us that perspective and just give us the courage to step into what we know is right, to step into what we know you want, and and to follow you and obey you as as your word says. Give us that heart. Make us uh, want to obey you. Lord, give us peace as we go in your name. Amen.
Go in peace.